0: You want to know how many World War II movies there are in the world? What if I told you that 1990 produced a World War II film with a $23 million budget, starring Matthew Modine, Eric Stoltz, Sean Astin, Billy Zane, Harry Connick Jr., David Strathairn, and John Lithgow, and you've probably never even heard of it. The Memphis Belle was a real B-17 flying fortress that was successful enough in the air war over Germany that it had a propaganda documentary made about it. What we watched for today's episode, though, is a fictional story that does away with almost every detail of the real history. The crew is different. The circumstances are different. The only thing unchanged is that the crews of these incredibly dangerous missions were given a quota. Survive 25 bombing runs and you get to go home. So we start this film on the eve of the Bell's 25th mission, and what we get is a straight down the middle story about that mission. Not the real mission, mind you, but a semi-plausible bombing mission. I say semi because a million pet ants on the internet have quibbled with just about every aspect of the mission that's depicted in this film, but this is the narrative motion picture, not the newsreel documentary. It's a weird movie because it has a hard time finding a bad guy. Sure, there's... Germans, but they're mostly represented by Akak or the occasional harassing fighter plane. But they're not personified or even particularly vilified. They're just the other team. There's John Lithgow's character, a lieutenant colonel who wants to take the crew back stateside after their bombing run to promote war bonds and get famous. He's not so much a villain as a guy who puts his foot in his mouth, though. I understand that completely. There's the generals calling David Strathairn to give the Bell and the rest of the wing a particularly dangerous mission, but he doesn't qualify, because uh, those guys are just trying to win a war. Instead, this very small story is focused almost entirely on the ten men in the airplane. The relationships between them are strong and lived in, and the tensions feel like they've been cultivated over 24 previous missions. It's a film that almost lives outside the era in which it was made. It has the feeling of something that could have been made at any point from 1945 onward, with only the special effects being handled differently, and maybe that's why it came, and went, unremarked upon. But we're not leaving this film behind. We're gonna see it through its straightforward, almost self-consciously, generic retelling of a story that so many air crews live through. And you bet your buttons, me and John are gonna wax poetic about airplanes. And if he's lucky, we might even get Ben involved. If we don't drop these bombs right in the pickle barrel, there are going to be a lot of innocent people killed today on Friendly Fire, as we discuss Memphis Bell.
1: to friendly fire the war movie podcast whose hosts are either in shock or covered in tomato soup i'm ben harrison i'm adam pranica
2: and i'm john roderick
1: i I, watching this was wondering if there's enough plain nerd stuff in this movie to make it interesting to watch
2: oh yes my friend (laughs) adam how are you feeling in light of watching all of this plain nerd shit
0: yeah, I mean, I, I'm not a cigarette smoker, but when it was over, I did feel like uh, having a cigarette in the refractory period. Wow. Right after I, Memphis Bell was over. I wanted some
2: more P51 uh, material, frankly. Well, apparently that yeah, was like, an
1: anachronism. They, they, uh, yeah, right. They wouldn't have had those. No,
2: it would have been a P40 Tomahawk.
1: Boy, there are some angry nerds on the internet about that portion of the film. Is that right? I, like, the IMDb goof section had multiple angry screeds about that that I had to sort through on my way to my uh, to my moment of pedantry. Which, uh, just, you know, I could get it out of the way now if you want. Set in May, a farmer can be seen harvesting crops normally done in late summer. Winter wheat would be harvested in the spring.
2: Oh, I'm mad about that now. <laughs> That was just, that was there to establish uh, Harry Connick Jr.'s bona
1: fides as a farmer. Boy, what a voice on that guy.
0: What a pouty set of kissers on that guy. Love that guy. It's kind of embarrassing. Huh? A lot of
2: beautiful men in this movie, but a lot of also unbeautiful men.
1: Yeah, it's a weird cast where uh, are there 10 men in the crew? Yeah, Something like right. that. Well, I feel like yeah, five right. of them are like very famous faces, very distinctive, and then the other five are indistinguishable from each other.
2: Yeah, we see movies like Pearl Harbor where the entire cast is like implausibly beautiful. Yeah. But this one, like Zane, Billy Zane, is, I always have considered him maybe one of the most beautiful male actors ever. Right. Yeah. Like just rakish to the point of being uncomfortable.
0: I like the idea of him meeting with his agent and them going like, all right, well, I'm going to be wearing an oxygen mask for most of this film. How do I distinguish my face? And the agent's like, well, uh, you could really groom your eyebrows in such a way to make you recognizable.
1: The uh, the mustache that he pulls off in this film has been pulled off by so few people, but he really nails it. Yeah, yeah.
2: But then, yeah, you've got... You've got Sam G Gamwise.
0: <laughs> Playing
2: against type
0: here, right? Like yeah, right. Rudy.
2: Did you know that he is the son of Patty Duke? What? Yeah, and he was raised thinking that Desi Arnez Jr. was his father. He's he's a guy that's got like four fathers. That he that uh I've got four fathers,
1: to- Mr. Frodo. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he claims to love them all equally because during he, he basically is like um, Liv Tyler. He grew up his whole life thinking one guy was his father, and then it turned out, and then another guy adopted him, and then the third guy, the guy Jeez. that turned out that was the like the the brother of the mailman or whatever, turns out to be
1: his real. That father. It must have been an exciting episode of Maury. <laughs>
2: <laughs> but you know, I, I always thought he was just some uh, some guy, some some goofy actor, but. Like, he's Hollywood royalty. Yeah, wow. He's great in this movie. He is. And, and a lot of these actors, this is really the beginning of their career. This is Harry Connick Jr.'s first acting role. It's, uh... Eric Stoltz is, like, already well-established, but uh, but still young. Yeah. Matthew Modine, still young.
0: Uh, still young John Lithgow. I was surprised to read that the, uh... Speaking of Sean Astin's character in this film, that the, uh... The ball turret is the most dangerous position on the B-17. If you were to uh, have a position that wasn't pilot or co-pilot, what, do you, what would you guys choose?
1: Tail gunner looked pretty fun. Yeah, but tail gunner's got to be the second
2: most dangerous job. I would have thought that was the most dangerous. Right. Uh, I think I would have been bombardier. Yeah, that seems like a good one.
0: Their depiction of bombardiering in this film is also incorrect too because uh i was surprised to find out that a lot of the bombardier's job was just aligning a site and allowing a rickety ass computer to do the math of altitude and airspeed and and like triangulating the target like the uh the bombardier as depicted in memphis bell is doing a lot more work than one would typically do on these missions
2: was it as inaccurate as the pronunciation "bombardier"?
0: <laughs> I'm hoping that that your pronunciation pedantry takes the piss out of all of the Reddit pronunciation pedants.
2: <laughs> uh, well, no this is the this is the famous Norton bomb site. This is the bomb site that.
1: Should I have um,
0: pronounced it Bombardier? Yes, Bombardier. <laughs> That's
1: how Ben would pronounce it. I would say Bombardier.
2: <laughs> but the Norton Bomb site was thought to be such a strategic innovation that it was it was like uh, top secret at the level of the Manhattan Project. Oh, so top secret because it had because it was this analog computer that. This whole concept of this film is, that, uh, is one of the daylight bombing campaigns. So the British were bombing at night, all night. And then during the day, the Americans were flying these super high- Bomb
0: albums. all night! Sleep all day! <laughs> <laughs>
2: Anyway, so the two, the British were going at night, lower altitude, and then the Americans would come in high. And the reason that they could bomb super high was they had this super, supposedly super accurate bomb site that could put bombs like down smokestacks or whatever. And when they tested it, it was like impossibly accurate. And so it it was thought to be this game changer.
1: I mean, everybody remembers the iconic footage from World War II of the the footage from the tip of the bomb as it goes, oh, you know, yeah. right, into its right target, down the right. smokestack.
2: <laughs> it turned out later that the Norton bomb site was not that accurate, and that we were we were routinely
0: bombing schools and churches. But what the bomb site The Norton bomb site was constantly asking you to update Its <laughs> virus protection software You'd look in and it would just be really a spinning beach annoying. ball It's <laughs> like come
2: on
1: Captain I
0: still got spin a spinning beach I ball I just updated it yesterday Every time
1: I put a floppy disk into this fucking plane I have to clear a menu God damn it
2: <laughs> uh, So but that's like the, that's like a plot point and, and I think that, I think you, the bomb <laughs> actually did take over flying the aircraft during the bomb run. Although, you know, this, yeah, this like little, this little computer that was just two hamsters spinning on a <laughs> wheel was calculating like all these things, but still it was, oh, and this whole thing about the, uh, all the bombers dropping their bombs on the lead, on the command of the lead plane was another way to try and do this precision this precision bombing all all because of this bomb. Site. Wow. But it turned out it wasn't that good actually.
0: John, I also read that these bombing missions didn't take as much care to avoid civilian targets as was depicted in this film. What was your take on that?
2: Well, early on in the war it was different than later or early on in the campaign it yeah. it, it morphed like it was not technically illegal in international law terms to bomb civilians witness hiroshima the firebombing of dresden and tokyo yeah the doctrine was well let's just terrorize the population until they develop the will to quit but the you know the americans always start everything with some kind of higher moral Attitude, that then then reality enters and they all slip slip out. Should I
0: write an autobiography? That will be its title: "The Will to Quit." (laughs) The will to quit.
2: (laughs) (laughs) So times times changed in the in the course of the war. I mean, the Germans were bombing civilian populations from day one, right? The bombing of london the blitz in poland like they just they they didn't pretend and the japanese too were bombing people in china you know civilian populations from before they attacked america
0: this b-17 was a real game changer like as a platform it could carry double the amount of bombs as any other bomber but i mean it's it was going up against a a fighter plane in Germany That the Allies didn't have an answer for Like that Folkwolf 190 Was the best performing fighter plane In the war And they were a real problem for the B-17 I don't think enough was made Of the Folkwolf's Lethality in this film I think
1: They lost a lot of, of their wing like the, uh, In that yeah. bombing run and
0: uh... it, it felt very even Like more even yeah. than, than it kind of I think was generally this now. movie
1: is like is from such an interesting era of filmmaking. Like the effects are a very old school version of the kinds of special effects that you get in airplane movies. It's all uh, yeah. a lot of green screen, some model work, and some like pretty impressive stuff. But you know when they when they show a a shot down fighter going through the tail section of one plane, <laughs> it's like you can you can see the little toothpicks in the in the fuselage <laughs>
2: <laughs> there was one scene when they were looking out at the burning engine and it seemed like they were paint the painted flames yeah. that that i objected to that moment but but a lot of like that first B17 crash on the runway you could tell there was modeling happening but there also seemed to be real airplane crash like like the there was a when it when the wheels touched the ground yeah. there was a shutter throughout the fuselage that looked like it just looked like it couldn't be a scale model the way the
1: right metal deal yeah was. it was it, it's like there are certain things that don't scale and and that doesn't seem like it would be one thing but yeah like did they really crash a, a b17 for that shot i don't know
2: no not for that shot, although in the making of this film, they did crash a B-17. One of the f- five remaining flyable B-17s. Wow. Crashed it in a dumbass accident. Yeah. Where the, I don't know what it was. Something was either malfunctioning in the controls or there was a heavy crosswind or something, but the pilot just ran it off the runway and into it. fuck. <laughs> and then it caught on fire and burned. It's just like, okay, you guys, you had one job.
1: Man, what a bummer they uh they didn't get to put that s p c a disclaimer on the end of the credits. no b seventeens no. were harmed in the making of this film
0: <laughs> that moment where uh Tate Donovan's character runs to the back and gets some tailgun time that's the like his is one of the three incidents in the film I thought were that were like the most emotionally resonant for me like he finally gets. Some, some gun time. His gun time results in the destruction of another plane, and that moment in the film comes maybe an hour into it. I thought this film had like three such scenes. There's there's that initial crash that sets the tone for what kind of danger the these flight crews are in when they go out on these missions. There's that moment where you hear over the radio the screams of the crew as their plane goes down and then there's that moment where uh where billy zane has to decide whether or not to throw a guy out the bombay doors because he'd have a better chance of survival than through his his meager powers of medicine but like between these three punctuations like there's run-on sentences of like Gazi grandpa worship <laughs> that like I wish there were five more five more exclamation points in this film right there's so much time in between these these moments that it's uh it felt like as Disney to me as the Dumbo Trot movie yeah this is like Dumbo Drop with the F word
2: <laughs> yeah there was there, it wasn't meant at any point really to be to be funny it was supposed to be serious the whole time
1: 1990 is such a weird like middle period it's like post reagan right. but pre-clinton like like what what were we doing making this movie as a people like what what is it what does it even mean to us
2: i don't know i couldn't decide because i've criticized other world war ii movies made in in recent years for being anachronistic in terms of the way people talked, sure, right, like hero dudes uh, who were wrestling with their demons, you know, the Saving Private Ryan problem, where like boys don't cry at in nineteen forty-three, and I felt like for most of the movie, the sort of like jocularity of the of the dudes actually was probably pretty close to correct. Mm-hmm. You know, that nobody was really, I mean, that that one morbid poem notwithstanding, everybody was just sort of playing the dozens and that scene where the two dudes are talking in the bathroom and on their way out of the bathroom, uh, they kind of put their arms around each other and come out of the bathroom and two dudes are coming into the bathroom with their arms around each other. And I was like, yeah, that's probably, you know, in 1943, there was a lot more of that kind of male touching yeah. because there was so little,
1: there was the gay panic it was, was not even a glimmer in anybody's eye yet.
2: Yeah. Right. So it was clean. It was clean almost in a way that a 1943 movie would have been maybe cleaner huh. uh, because we've watched some war movies from the war that actually are grittier.
1: It does feel like a throwback in some ways because it's sort of... I feel like every war movie after a certain point is either pro-war or anti-war, you know? And this doesn't seem to really be either in in, in the yeah. way that those contemporaneous with the war, World War II films feel. So it's like, here is something that happened, you know?
2: I, I It's curious, this movie came out in September of 90 and the first Gulf War started three months later. So in that sort of period between December of 89, when the Berlin Wall fell, there was one year, 1990, where we believed that, or some of us believed that war was over, right? Fukuyama famously said, it's the end of history. We had one year, (laughs) <laughs> Between December of 89 and January of 91, where it was kind of inconceivable, like the the threat we'd all lived under for 50 years of the the Soviets uh, was gone. And all of the Eastern Bloc just seemed like <laughs> three uh, friendly people Ooh. who were writing heartfelt poems. Wow. <laughs> so... Was that one year basically the 1950s of the 1990s? (laughs) Did the 90s make the 70s look like the 50s? Or did the 50s make the 90s look like the 70s? I don't know. I've been trying to unravel this my whole adult life.
0: I mean, Private Ryan wouldn't come out for another eight years. And this film feels more than 10 years prior to that film.
2: Yeah, you know? but you're but you're right to situate it in a very weird year.
0: Yeah. Like you would have thought that the corner on war films would have been turned by now in terms of like the savagery of the depictions. Memphis Bell is not a platoon contemporary in any other way besides proximate years.
2: Well, and also the greatest generation in 1990 were what? 70. So they're kind of in the you know they're kind of in the prime of their middle late age. They they've they've just graduated from being the goddamn older assholes that that were against the <laughs> hippies. And you know the this is the era when the yuppies started self-celebrating. But this is probably the turning point where the greatest generation no longer felt like the mean grandpas and started turning into like, hey, they made the world safe for democracy or whatever.
1: Yeah, like these guys are grandpas in a weird way. Like they're all just nice guys that don't complain too much and they do a hard thing and they get it done, you know?
0: Feels like one of the last World War II films to depict these people, like while they still have a chance to watch your film, knowing you have their attention with something And like like the
1: older men in the film, the, the David Strathairn character and uh what's his nose
0: uh derringer the john lithgow character
1: yeah and and john lithgow like are to whatever extent like as as much of bad guys as we really get i mean that aren't enemy fighter planes or like flak in the sky so so there's like a weird generational gap there right
2: yeah right and I, and the enemy being the sleazy pr guy It really comports with the greatest generation's attitude about themselves. That like sleazy advertising was a thing that came after the war and this was, it reinforced the idea that most of the greatest generation had ethics and were doing real hard work without asking for any praise. For context, this was the year that the hunt for red October came
1: out, also a film with kind of shaky at best special effects
2: right and also a film where the only bad guys really are the political
1: officers yeah like the only bad guys are like misunderstandings
2: Uh uh-huh misunderstandings (laughs) or like company men right but this is also the year of Dances with Wolves (laughs)
0: Hey, do you guys think that a war film about the greatest generation couldn't possibly depict them as anything but perfect because of like the inherent sensitivities and the amount of pushback a filmmaker would have gotten for that? Like in many ways like society had to wait for them to die before totally reckoning with the idea of how this generation squandered a great post-war economy and voted Republican and ruined Thanksgiving for the next 30 years. Like, (laughs) do you think that there was like, there was a reluctance to, to meet them head on because of that, because they were such a, like a societal force,
2: maybe not a direct reluctance, but it reflects the gradual evolution of how we talk about generations and ourselves, right? They were the first generation to really Embrace psychology and psychiatry as a mainstream idea, but they were not an especially self-reflective generation and the idea of holding an entire generation responsible for, for the whatever the crimes of the worst or just for the passage of time was a thing that was evolving during this whole period too. Hmm. So the yuppies, the hippies held their parents responsible, but we felt like, I mean, but also culturally in 1990, we were wrestling with the idea that maybe the hippies weren't just, maybe they were the callowest generation, right? This is right when Fortunate Son started to appear in every war movie. I mean generation X is so self-reflective and such a like m- morose bummer generation of ineffectual
1: losers
2: <laughs> that it that it changed the way generations think about themselves.
1: I had uh, second thoughts about even starting a podcast with Gen Xers.
2: <laughs> I know. <laughs> There are a lot of people listening to this show that are like, the Gen X
1: guy. I have a very Ugh. I have a very fragile psychology, and being around this bummer generation <laughs> is just really tough.
2: For Gen Xers, the new reality sees the birth of McJobs and the death of traditional careers. The stereotype
0: of the slacker
2: is born. I didn't find as much about this movie there I didn't go through it feeling. Like it was especially inaccurate, even though it's all, all these people are composites and there's so they're just cliche dripping off of everything.
1: It's a made up mission too, right? Like the, the actual Memphis bell, which is a real plane and really did fly 25 missions. Didn't, this was not its last bomb run.
2: No. Although the Memphis bell did go back and do the publicity trip around the United States raising money for war bonds. So half of it is true story.
0: Did you feel like the film was effective in its depiction of the mission itself though? Even though like the characters are a composite, maybe the mission was a composite mission. I felt like the stress of the mission was fairly acute, especially the moments where they realize that their target is clouded over and they have to go around like knowing that you know, you can't just keep rolling the dice and expect to not crap out eventually. Like, I thought those moments on the flight deck were especially heady. Did that make you feel things?
2: For sure. I I mean, this movie really communicated how claustrophobic a B-17 was, how much terror there must be when you're under a flak attack, and it's just like, it could come from anywhere. But also, we never see a single enemy face. So we never actually have any direct contact with the enemy, but
1: they describe it right. One one time, when a when a bomber strays, them guy says uh, that guy had blue eyes. Yeah, right.
2: <laughs> Incredible.
1: Um, I think this is the kind of plane my grandfather flew in the war. So really, yeah, it was it was definitely interesting. Like I I found a picture of him at my at my folks' house. Uh, about a month ago and like he is wearing like the same stuff that they're wearing in in the like scenes where they're tomato soup you know (laughs) yeah drenched in it (laughs) it is interesting from this to me from the standpoint of like oh i guess like this is kind of like something like what he might have experienced like i don't really know anything about what missions he flew or whatever or like i mean i know he was a pilot but i don't know if he was the the pilot pilot or the co-pilot or anything. I mean, I guess I could talk to my mom about it, but, um, it, it was interesting to just kind of like spend a couple of hours in what felt like a realistic depiction of the experience he might have had. And in the same way that like, I, th- I feel like we've seen some films that touch on areas that, uh, might be like what your father experienced, John, like the, airstrips on islands in the the Pacific that he would have flown into and stuff.
2: Yeah, my dad was under enemy fire. You know, it took my dad a long time to start describing himself as the co-pilot. My whole young life, he described himself as the pilot, but he was a lieutenant junior grade and never was promoted during the war because I think he had a drinking problem. And it was only when he was much older that he started to kind of drop in that he was the co-pilot on a lot of his missions. Huh. And I think we see that in this movie quite a bit. There were so many people in World War II who were legitimately valorous, like D-Day soldiers and the first guys ashore on Iwo Jima and all these people that were they were celebrated in the States at the time as, as heroes in a way that, uh, it didn't happen at all during Vietnam or the Gulf war or Afghanistan. Like a lot of the people that won the medal of honor, even during subsequent wars, were just kind of like, Oh yeah, good job. I hope you didn't, you know, good job, baby killer or whatever. (laughs) You just don't turn it off during world war two. If you were, uh, if you like won the medal of honor, you were brought home and given a tour of the United States. And so I think a lot of, and we see it twice in this movie, Billy Zane confesses that he lied about being a doctor. And in the, in the clinch moment, he has this, this powerful shame about having spent the whole war, basically pretending to be more, you know, more accomplished than he is and then the 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 eric stoltz moment where he wakes up from the verge of death and says i didn't write that poem it's a <laughs> i just copied a Yeats poem into my book and then he goes and then he dies <laughs> and is resuscitated and both of those seem to be trying to communicate something about what it seemed to me was a very common feature of World War 2 vets which was the expectation that they have a story particularly since they weren't a braggadocious generation the expectation that they have that they would have done something heroic and hundreds of thousands of guys just went and did their jobs yeah and didn't ever do anything heroic they just you know they were They were in supply or whatever, Uh, but they came back and they didn't want to say, oh, I was just the you know, I was just doing milk runs (laughs) like it felt like the the movie was trying to reach out to those people or trying to say that this was a common experience.
1: Right. Yeah. I mean, like think of how many World War Two films we've seen about something exciting that happened in World War Two. But what what have I told you? (laughs) Other not-exciting things also happened in World War II. Would you watch a movie about that?
0: Director Benjamin R. Harrison brings you
2: (laughs) Typing Pool. (laughs) (laughs) You'll
0: never look at a carriage return the same way again. (laughs) Ding. Ding. Ding! Coming this
1: summer. Like, Matthew Modine is, in some ways, the hero of the movie i guess but he's like not he doesn't have that much screen time and he's like a pretty unknowable character and if you compare him to like his full metal jacket character like you really get to know that guy and get to know what makes him tick and and it's such a different performance in this film
0: i hope everybody's wearing their flak jackets
2: these guys have been on 25 missions together and yet there are several scenes in the movie where it feels like they are just for the first time learning about each other or recognizing, that, that recognizing certain like dominating characteristics about one another. Right. And Matthew Modine being the classic example of he's kind of a prig <laughs> and also a nerd. He keeps bringing up his family's furniture business like anybody gives a shit, but he would have been doing that the entire time.
1: Right. The way the movie opens, they're like playing football and it's Lithgow voiceovering, which like, which character types they are. It, and it's like all of these like character types that are classic war movie character types. And then I feel like but I feel like in that in, for some reason that scene like doesn't stick with you and then you have to like re get to know the characters from scratch and it takes the entire movie to get to know like which which guy is what and y- you know oh that's the religious one that's the self-serious captain and that's the, the guy from Cleveland or whatever
0: there's always a guy from Brooklyn huh <laughs> Yeah but but classically no
2: Jew Oh, first of all, right. We never see a person of color in the entire film. And I don't think that was inaccurate. No, Uh, but that, but I think 1990 might've been the last year that you could make a movie where there wasn't at least one person of color that shows up.
0: The only women in the film are for seducing and fucking. Also, I think there's only two women in the film.
2: Only one, only one that we see her, her face, but also there were two, two redheaded Irish dudes. And nobody from the Southwest, nobody from... If you're going to do a composite, why would you pick two, two Irish dudes? <laughs> right? Why not put one guy from New Mexico or one Jewish guy? It just seemed, it seemed weird to do composites and have everybody be essentially from Minneapolis whoa, that just blew everybody's <laughs> mind. <laughs> Nobody has anywhere to go from there.
1: Um, no, I, I I really agree. And I think that that's like part of the problem, especially when they get their face masks on. They're just so hard to tell apart. And the quarters are so cramped. It's a little hard to tell which gun each guy is working. You know? Right. Like the, it's a very claustrophobic movie, And that is to its credit, but also like you can never tell what's going on. Like when they, when somebody spots a bomber coming in or spots a fighter coming in, you're not sure which angle they're, they're working on. So like they actually have to call it out and.
0: Yeah. Unlike in USS Indianapolis, uh, where, where the captain's (laughs) calling out clock directions, like it's actually effective when you're on a bombing run to call out where these people are coming from
1: but i feel like it's all tell and no show you know like the the movie has to put the geometry of every attack into into the dialogue because it just didn't have they didn't have the technology to show it
0: the film came really close to establishing the type of person that would operate a certain station on a plane and it didn't quite go far enough to like cement the idea but the idea that sean astin's character is the biggest dickhead and he's in the most dangerous spot on the on the plane like makes sense and right, and right. like he's the
2: littlest dude the, too.
0: the stoic taciturn captain you know uh running the show like seems like pretty grounded in reality the the co-pilot who wishes you he wish were it was
1: grounded in reality that a stoic taciturn guy would run the show <laughs> I do. I
0: really do. Uh, the the co-pilot who resents not being the pilot, who who wishes he had something to do at all times, like right. I feel like I feel like rather than build character, they're associating like they're they're doing the shorthand of character building via job responsibility.
1: And then like all of the like heavy moments feel like they are as shorthand like you could just tell those rookies were doomed the second they uh, were established as such you know
0: would you have felt different about their plane going down had they not been treated as such dickheads uh, in that dance scene early on like we get to meet a member of that rookie crew and he's like hey guys like if you could give me any pointers we're feeling pretty green out there and he gets just fucking hazed (laughs) I feel like you would feel their deaths more acutely if there was a a moment of sincere like, well, here's a little tip no one will ever tell you. and And then like leave it at that. But that the rookie crew was hated from the start and almost treated as like a pariah of bad luck. Like so many of the crew people are superstitious. I kind of felt that the Memphis Bell crew saw the new guys as as an unlucky omen. Did you guys get that?
1: The whole first half of this film, and then, you know, like peppered throughout, really, is all of these like it's like a shell game of omens and portents and talismans yeah. of luck and like, oh, did the did the religious medallion get checked out the window? No, it didn't. Oh, here's the clover, here's the here's the rubber band. It's like luck horse trading that it feels like the movie didn't quite like it. It has all of the symbolism of luck without ever committing to whether or not it's at play. And and I feel like you really have to make a decision about that if you're if you're a movie, you know, like like does luck work in this movie or not?
0: One person believing in luck feels like a character trait. The entire crew believing in these things make them look dumb to me.
1: Yeah, like the moment when um, the Lithgow character gets up and, and, you know, is like essentially like celebrating the success of the Memphis Bell before their final mission. And everybody's like, Yee! and like trying to trying to cut him off. That was like,
0: interesting storytelling to me. I didn't know hip hip hooray was bad luck in that context.
2: Oh, I think it would have been okay the n- the next day. Yeah, right. Don't jin- uh, there- jinx is a big.
0: Part oh, you didn't you didn't think it was specific to "hip hip hooray"? I kind of thought it was. I thought it was directly associated with that being said, versus just the general feeling of pre celebrating a success.
1: I interpreted it as being akin to like. St- telling a pitcher who's on a right. on a no-hitter like you're pitching a hell of a game. Yeah.
0: <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Or, or
2: or you know, that's why we say break a leg. Yeah. To actors. Yeah. Jinx is one of the main sort of luck notions.
1: I was surprised that they never did anything with like somebody shooting at a fighter and the fighter clears and then there was another b-17 right behind the fighter
0: flying in a straight line leaves you subject to uh torpedoes from submarines though this is something we learned in uss indianapolis <laughs> that's
1: right yeah that got nick cage in a lot of trouble that's right
2: well you know maybe i was a little bit far-fetched <laughs> there were a lot of narrative threads that went that didn't go anywhere like for instance uh we spend the whole film with watching several very explicit moments where Eric Stoltz is taking pictures with his little box camera. And there's that whole scene, that tense scene where his camera is vibrating off the table and he goes and retrieves it. And the, and then that the payoff of that is all in that weird moment where he goes to rescue the camera and the shrapnel comes through the side of the plane and i guess we're supposed to think that rescuing the camera actually saved his life but that felt like a lot of of lead up to a pretty weird glanced over payoff
0: yeah i wonder if michael j fox's performance as that character would have made us feel differently
2: (laughs) (laughs) he would have had a lot better comedic timing
1: This all just comes back to like, what, like, why did they make this movie? (laughs) You know, when Spielberg made Saving Private Ryan, he had like something to say about World War II and we can debate whether it was a thing worth saying or it was the right thing to say or it was a bad take or whatever, but this feels like, like... I I just picture, like, a studio executive, like, chomping on a cigar going, like, okay, we're going to do a boxing picture, a religious picture, a war picture. You know, like, it's like we made this to make it, almost.
0: It's unfortunate that this film had the resources that it had in all of these planes, and this was the story that it told, I guess, you know? Well, the,
1: the,
2: the generational thing I guess I'm getting at is that we... Do not have sentimentality. We don't appreciate sentimentality. We don't admire it. We're extremely unsentimental. We want to take a hard
1: John Hodgman told us to stop. Well, that's right. So we did.
2: We want to take a hard look at everything. That's what defines our time. As soon as you say, like, oh, you know, Martin Luther King was amazing, there's always somebody that's like, he cheated on his wife. You know, there's always a there's there's always somebody that wants to debunk mythology. And this movie is trading in sentimentality, but at a time when you could, when sentimentality was actually a lingua franca. And so looking at it now, we're just like, where's your take? What's your fucking take?
1: (laughs) <laughs> but it yeah, I guess that is why I'm confused yeah, but in
2: 1990 it's like there is no hot take it's just like this we're going to spend an hour and a half stressing you out and in the end you're going to feel like everybody made it that's the whole
1: story Lieutenant Sinclair is never going to think another thought about that plane that he kind of caused to die
2: the other dude is going to go start
1: yeah it's really weird because i i just watched the founder like the night before i watched this film Mm. which is about the the way mcdonald's became a ubiquitous restaurant
0: was ray Kroc a b-17 cheat gunner
1: (laughs) no but he does kill a number of germans in the film
0: The infighting among the crew was so verbal and not physical, right? I was expecting some more, like, scrabbling around. I think the biggest fight we get is between Derringer and Harriman. This is the moment that, like, Lithgow's character basically says that Harriman doesn't care about his troops. It's a pretty unforgivable thing for a soldier to say to another soldier yeah, And I cannot believe the restraint that Harriman shows in just like hauling him into his office and showing him a bunch of the letters instead of punching him in the face on the dance floor.
2: Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but officers would never have gotten into a fist fight.
0: This moment is one of the things that makes Memphis Belle really unique because the idea of writing back the person who sends the wartime condolence letter i think is something that i've never seen in another war film you you frequently get a voiceover of a mother reading the letter or someone sitting at a desk and having to write the letter but the idea of these letters being responded to was fascinating to me do you feel like a, a response was 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 de rigueur
2: sure this is letter writing times
0: how back and forth did they go? Like did the did the original writer like thank them for writing back and and recognizing how difficult it is to write? Dear
2: Mrs. Jones, after your son died, I appreciated your letter of March 7th. <laughs> thank you for including the picture of him as a child. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean I actually teared up during the scene where they're showing real footage of yeah. B17s getting shot down over these parents that are writing these letters back I mean it was the most emotional moment.
1: Yeah It really made Derringer look like a total asshole
2: (laughs) Yeah and that was a little convenient how much he realized what an asshole he was having read like halfway through one letter like oh I get it now real boys are dying like no boo
0: (laughs) In a film that uses the F word I feel like Harriman should have told him to fuck off or something. Like, something stronger than the letters, even. Like, like that Harriman uses the letters in this way instead of achieving his own correction of Derringer felt... I don't know. Like, I wanted sharper talons on these yeah. characters.
2: We've seen this a couple of times, and Flags of Our Fathers, one example. But I have a sneaking suspicion that guys like army PR guys were a lot closer to taking their civilian skills into the war. You know, like you got all these farmers and, and furniture makers that got trained to be pilots and they're up there. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm a, I like make chairs back home, but the PR guys were guys that were like, I'm in PR and now I'm in army PR. And you wonder whether a full bird colonel that's running an air force would have been somewhat constrained in his ability to use military discipline against a lieutenant colonel that was in army PR. Because it seems like the PR dude maybe doesn't answer to other brass. Yeah, he might be able to say like, hey, look, man, you can you can't really order me around. I mean, you can tell me to take these streamers down, but I'm on a bigger mission than you even understand. I don't I don't know
1: you keeping these boys safe is one thing, but me selling war bonds is entirely another exactly.
0: At least that feels implied. Right. I remember when I first got here. Pretty breezy 90 minutes or like just over 90 minutes
2: although super that that bomb room super stressful there's no getting away from the fact that even though there's no swearing we don't really see blood and guts that's pretty harrowing
0: i like the focus of the film on the one mission a lot
1: yeah that felt uh like an interesting take like i I really didn't know what I was in for was were they going to get shot down and and, uh, you know, all have to parachute into enemy territory or something was
2: each guy going to going to catch his his piece of flack one at a time.
1: And astonishing that like the the little brushes with death are really just brushes with death. Like, I mean, John Astin at one point is like dangling out of the bottom of the plane and guy almost slips down through the bomb bay doors, but nobody dies. None of our None of our guys dies.
0: None of our guys dies. <laughs> Not a good shirt. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right, fine. Take the uh, take the drawing back to the drawing board.
0: Do you think the guy at Boeing who designed the manual crank system for lowering one of the landing gear wheels realized how long it would take to wind that thing like do you want to make the teeth bigger and and spaced further apart for expediency i think you do yeah
1: the ratios on those on those gears are really fucked up that was
0: madness and they had to do it in shifts <laughs> <It's> so exhausting <laughs> well uh, That's you know not good
2: adam you you uh bringing a boeing this is this is really an advertisement for Boeing. They put a lot of, maybe a lot more product placement than in any movie we've seen, because that Boeing logo on the steering wheel or on the yoke, excuse me.
0: Oh, please cut out steering wheel. So Ryan. many cannot people cannot allow that to go through. Oh,
2: so many people are going to be so mad on the yoke. Uh, It just we see it over and over like almost there's one scene where it's zoomed in and it just basically it's just like Boeing, which which felt a little bit intentional. And I'm not sure what that was about.
1: I think in 1990, TWA was still offering flights on flying fortresses. (laughs) So
2: I would like to point out for our listeners overseas and by overseas, I mean anything east of Iowa. (laughs) um that those b-17s were manufactured less than two miles from where i'm broadcasting uh and they just recently and i'm talking about in the last hmm, seven years they just tore down plant number two factory number two or whatever that was the building where they actually built the b-17s and for years you could drive past it on the on the uh, South Park Bridge and look over and the ceiling was kind of, the roof of the building was kind of caving in and you know, water was getting in. Boeing didn't, for whatever reason, preserve this building. It was right on the Duwamish River and it was this classic 1930s factory building. And one day they just tore it down and I was like, you don't think that's a thing that you should you should save you dingalings <laughs> like just keep it as a place to have weddings i mean a huge open you know windows all along factory building and they just tore it down but there's a famous story in in my neighborhood that when they would when they would have a, a when Boeing field would be full of a complement of B17s and they would start their motors up all at once engines when they would start their engines up all at once <laughs> Uh, that it would rattle the windows in my house, rattle the windows in this whole neighborhood, just, just the wow. thrum of those engines. And every single one of those, Every my house was built in 1916, every single one of those airplanes would have flown directly over my house on its way out.
1: Wow. Yeah. Wow. You think any of them were tempted when they looked down at your house? Like, let's just let one bomb go.
2: Yeah, I bet, I bet they were, actually. Can you imagine flying around with it like, oh, man, I could just bomb
0: anything right now. Nowadays, the only thing that rattles John's house is the uh, thrum of his CPAP machine. <laughs> <laughs>
1: You're working a little hard at being a hard ass. The, uh,
0: the Memphis Bell is
1: on display now at the uh, National Museum of the U.S. Air Force.
0: Which is in Ohio and not Memphis. Kind of sad.
1: Yeah, well, it was just named after that one dude's girlfriend, right?
2: Right, the captain's wife's lament.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I I, uh, I sent a video to John and Adam before we started recording today of the of the plane being like taken from the hangar where they restored it to wherever they displayed it, and it's a pretty remarkable video, mainly in that it's incredibly long and boring and ten minutes where it could have been forty five seconds. <laughs>
0: I've made a lot of airplane taxis from one place to another videos in my professional career, and I don't think any of them are longer than a minute.
2: <laughs> well, you, bad editing. You can actually fly in a B seventeen from Boeing Field during the summer. They take you up and fly you around. It's like four hundred bucks or something. And Adam and I have debated whether or not to do it, and oh, man. we have consistently chosen not to do it
0: john i've been 90 percent sure that it's something i wanted to do and then i watched a making of the film documentary about memphis bell and one of the old b-17 pilots was was talking to the camera from the flight deck and he's like you know back in the day these things were and he sort of gives it a knock he's like rock solid like (laughs) like best best plane you could ask for but uh I don't know if I would fly one of these nowadays. <laughs> Honestly, I still would love to take one of those rides.
2: Yeah, me too.
0: I think, I think this is a magical plane. And, you know, you talk about Boeing being a star of this film. Like, the Memphis Belle is the title character of the film. Right. Like, of course it's going to get uh, all of the camera seduction shots of, of like, a, a hot rod in a car movie. You know? Right. The, the the plane is the thing. I mean, it is the thing that makes this film watchable, I would say.
2: It certainly was, for a plane nerd, just so hot.
0: Guys, I have a pretty serious question for you. Are you someone who, when they pluralizes son of a bitch, do you say sons of bitches or son of a bitches? Wow. Because that comes up in this film. And in the film, it's son of a bitches.
2: No, that's not how you say
0: I don't it. agree with that at all.
2: No, it's sons of bitches. It's not even son of a bitches. So it's sons of bitches. Right? You sons of bitches.
0: That is my moment of pedantry. They say <laughs> son of a bitches? When a character on the B-17 calls the rest of his crew son of a bitches, it's actually wrong because it should be sons of bitches. I kind of like son of a bitches. <laughs> I think
1: it's kind of funny. Son
0: of a bitches? Actually, I think that should be the new,
2: the new go-to term for us from now on.
0: Oh, yeah.
1: War movie podcast by three son of a bitches.
0: Oh, <laughs> you know, it's growing on me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I can get with that. I'm sorry, fellas. The end of the film depicts the landing gear lowered just a half a second before touchdown. Uh, the crippled plane is brought in, and then uh, and then it tacks over into the grass. Engine smoking. Uh, smoke on one engine, empedage totally blown apart, looking pretty difficult to steer. Our heroes hop out of the plane, our, uh, our injured Danny boy stretchered out. They don't take Danny boy directly to the ambulance. They're going to want to get that picture. It's a thing that for some reason, redeems the Derringer character? That's not fair. Yeah. Derringer's irredeemable. He gets his picture. The uh, the hope of a celebration is realized. I mean, I understand. This is a happy ending. Uh, our heroes survive. Yeah, and
1: they're going to go tour the States and
0: get war bonds sold. Why do you think he's
1: irredeemable?
0: I didn't want his bet to be cashed. Like... Not at the expense of the people that we've come to know and love in the film, like, but Lithgow is a loathsome character, and he's made to be the antagonist of the film.
1: You don't think he has redemption in the moment when he realizes that he's been acting like a bit of an ass? No,
0: because the redemption doesn't come from, from him. It comes from the crew surviving. It's totally external. Like He doesn't change. His, his bet is paid off mean, but we needed that guy, man. We needed to sell war bonds. I don't know where are you
1: at on this, John?
2: I guess after his come to Jesus moment where he reads the letters, we never see him be callow again, right his the whole scene where he's decorating the dance hall is what precipitates that that lecture. So we never cut back to him ever doing another bad thing, and I guess that means within the timeline of the movie we are left to feel like he's been redeemed and then he comes and he gets this picture, but nobody protests. Nobody's like, get this man to a hospital. Everybody's like, yeah, let's, you know, I, you know, actually there is a weird little redemption moment in that scene because the co-pilot who had formerly been the fame hungry pretty boy is the one that barks.
0: Take the picture and let's get on with this. He's the guy that actually makes a character journey.
2: Yeah, he says. He says, "Let's
0: get Mo- this
1: guy." And to Modine the makes the journey of opening the the bubbly wine, right? Yeah. Oh,
2: right, right. He becomes he becomes less tight assed
1: and more fun loving
2: in that last moment. Everybody, everybody, like makes it all the way around the two waste gunners that we were not aware had a problem with each other until their big scene where they have a big problem with each other.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Another, another thing that like they should have, we should have known that they bickered, but it's like one pulls a prank and the other's like, why did you pull this prank on me?
2: (laughs) I'm going to kill you yeah we should have had one you son of a bitches <laughs> we should have had one oh, scene wait. there's only one of you, you son of a bitch son how do you say bitch? that sons of bitch you sons of bitch we should have had one scene in the barracks where those two got into a shoving match right. over something so that 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 waist gunner scene made a little bit more sense
1: I almost think that maybe there was a scene like that and I just didn't know the difference between those two guys yet.
2: Right. Cuz there were a lot of there were a lot of scenes in the beginning of the movie where I don't know, there was a lot of shit talking.
1: And there was a lot of like other crews, so it was hard to tell which was which people were members of our crew and which weren't. White people
0: all look the same. Not the ones with severely groomed eyebrows. <laughs> yeah. Those people look different.
1: Beautiful pencil-thin mustaches. Well, should we uh, should we rate this puppy? Speaking of puppies, that dog was great.
0: <laughs> it looked related to your dog.
1: Yeah, it did kind of remind me of my dog.
0: Yeah, it's time to bring this episode in for a landing, isn't it,
1: guys? <laughs> Let's see if we can crank this wheel down.
0: <laughs> I'm going to crank down the wheel of my rating system here. We give every film on Friendly Fire its own custom rating system so that we can't compare any film to any other. And, uh... For Memphis Bell, there is a scene on the flight deck that that maybe delivers the most amount of trauma to our pilot and co-pilot. There's, they're flying through the flak. The flak is getting thick. It's exploding all around them. People are putting on their flak jackets. Those don't look comfortable.
1: Yeah, and they go over your parachute? That seems... Yeah. <laughs> That's, I I would hate to have to negotiate getting my flak jacket off while tumbling out of the the nose cone of my airplane.
0: One thing I liked about this film is the depiction of everything meant to keep them safer was also things that made their job so much harder, like yeah. that flak jacket or the gloves or the restraining cable that the uh, belly gunner didn't want to wear. All the that face stuff.
1: mask that could get like iced up and Yeah cause you to asphyxiate without realizing it?
0: Well anyway, uh a piece of flak explodes beneath the plane and ruptures the thermos of tomato soup. It's an incredibly scary moment because uh it looks like there's blood all over the place on the flight deck. Both the pilot and the co pilot are thinking that they're hit. And after a brief moment of panic they realize that uh that their blood is delicious and still warm. <laughs> tomato soup fairly good representation of how it feels to watch this film because war movies generally are made to feel scary in their own way right but memphis bell has all the look of something that's scary while just being tomato soup in the end (laughs) what i liked about this film are the moments of tension, the plane crashing to set the stage for the dangers of the mission, uh, the decision that has to be made about whether or not to push Danny Boy out the Bombay doors, uh, that landing at the very end. Those are all great moments in the film. There's the tension between the joy of being on the verge of going home and, like, the sadness of going home and leaving all these people that you love and you fight beside. But... For a war film in 1990, I expected a little more Private Ryan than Flying Leathernecks, and that is what this film feels like. I could have swore this film was produced by Disney, and I was surprised that it wasn't. It's one of the first war movies I can ever remember seeing as a kid, and I think if you're going to watch your first war film, this is a pretty good one. But for episode 62 of a war film podcast, Uh, It felt a little bit like some lukewarm soup to me. (laughs) The planes were the best part by a long shot, overshadowing uh, some pretty fine actors for 1990. Pretty stocked cast. And that disappointed me greatly. Uh, If you're a plane nerd, I think you'll love it. I am a plane nerd. Wasn't quite enough to give it more than three thermoses of tomato soup. Wow.
1: Wow. I think because not, I'm not that much of a plain nerd it it was pretty hard to get interested in this one like it it felt like a long 93 minutes to me and
0: um Ben do you feel like if Pearl Harbor were edited to a tight 90 it would resemble this film Oh that's interesting this film
1: isn't as pretty to look at as Pearl Harbor often is. Yeah. It's visually pretty uninspiring. and um,
0: Outside of the practical planes they used.
1: Right, yeah. I mean, but if the amazingness of that is a little bit lost on you, as it is me, I think that, I don't know, I'd have a hard time giving a full-throated like recommendation of this film to anyone. And the part that, I found special for me was just that I felt like I understood a tiny bit more what my grandfather did during the war. And that's a fairly personal experience. And, you know, I could have seen a 15 minute chop down (laughs) and gotten the same thing out of that, you know, a 15 minute
0: montage of a plane being towed from one hangar to the other.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Um, like the one, like, Artistic flourish in the film is that moment where it cuts to the, you know, the actual footage of B-17s getting shot down, Um, you know, like cutting away from the fictional world of the film to like actual scenes of B-17s in the war. Um, But I feel like this movie is like kind of trying to have it both ways. Like there's, there's this like lack of emotional seriousness so that pervades so much of the movie and then occasionally you know that plane comes in for a crash landing and explodes or you know the guy the guy is putting up streamers and getting confetti ready for their triumphant return and then has to go read letters and and i feel like the kind of the fact that those Really stood out as unusual in this film meant that I wasn't emotionally bought into the to any of the characters. Like I didn't I didn't love them the way I needed to 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 for this film to be like satisfying as a piece of drama. So uh, f- I think from a historical standpoint, it's really like interesting and cool and cool to see these planes. But uh, as a, uh, I, I think I'm gonna rate it two and a half cans of uh, tomato soup is it cans or thermos, thermoses of tomato soup right?
0: I think it's, a, it's pretty clearly one of those Stanley style thermoses with a cup in the top.
1: Yeah maybe two of tomato soup and one of whatever soup that guy had in his mouth when he barfed on uh, Billy Zane
0: Only John can give John style <laughs> ratings uh, <laughs> Ben <laughs> Don't go kit bashing my rating system
1: I've I've gotten creative with ratings before. Fuck you. I'll take these greeblies and Nernies and go make my own rating system.
2: We talk a lot about pork chop films. But we never talk about Salisbury steak films. Yeah, we never talk about just a plain old, plain hamburger film. Uh, I feel like I sometimes am at a disadvantage in that I take... Uh, I take a hard line on films that are too too much of a fantasy. And I feel like a lot of those fantasy movies that everybody else seems to love are fantasies where one baby oiled muscle pig (laughs) fires 400,000 rounds without ever reloading in a jizz fest of teenage gun worship and fucking like Hollywood shit. and I'll give those films a bad rating and then, you know, I'll go on our friendly fire Facebook page or the Reddit page. And there's all these, you know, boys who are like, why doesn't Roderick appreciate the fact that films are just for fun, man. <laughs> but this is an example of a different style of pork chop movie, which is a movie that doesn't ask anything of you you can walk into this movie and not know anything about B17s. There's no take, right? So you don't have to at the end of this movie you don't go home and have to think about imperialism. You know, <laughs> yeah, there's Yeah, all you
0: have to do is thank grandpa for his service.
2: Yeah, right. You sit down in a chair with a with a with some unbuttered or light buttered popcorn. Light buttered microwave popcorn and you watch the movie and you get to the end. And you think about how soldiers uh, lived through some pretty shitty things. There's nothing else to it. And I guess it's an old-fashioned pork chop movie. And as the, as the rep of old-fashionedness here, I watched it the whole time w- wondering, like, why no take? From the very beginning, it was clear there was never going to be a take. But it's not even really a very fun buddy picture because nobody's really buddies. It's, it all boils down to communicating the feeling of what it must have been like to be in an unheated, unpressurized tin can with open windows at 30,000 feet under a barrage of random shrapnel and grape shot. So I didn't love it. But I also don't, you know, I don't feel like I can have any criticism of it other than it was made in 1990 and it's hard for us to understand 1990. It's hard for, I was a fucking grown man in 1990 and I don't understand it. Maybe it was because I took one million bong hits between January and December of 1990. But, you know, like... (laughs) What was going on in 1990?
0: Like nothing. So John, you seem like an exotic bongman. Like like, were you just doing straight like regular ass bongs or did you have uh, anything crazy? Oh, I
2: was the Volga bongman. (laughs) Uh, No, we were constantly trying things. I remember a good friend of mine made a bong out of a Copenhagen can. Gross. So you take a Copenhagen can, you cut a hole in the side. How do you make a good idea that gross? It's amazing because what do you have all the time? You have your Copenhagen can in your back pocket. If who's <laughs> gonna ever? What cop is ever gonna say? Let me see that chew can. Yeah, I guess no one. Right. So you cut a hole. You, you cut a hole in the side uh, of the of the can, and then you cut another hole at a uh, like one ninety degree rotation. You have your bowl and your stem. You stick the bowl and stem in the top hole. You fill the can halfway full of water and put the lid on it. And, of course, it, that, that lid is watertight because it's got to keep your chew fresh. And then you turn the can at a like an oblique angle. So the stem is in the water, but the, but the other hole is out. And it's a fully functioning bong.
1: <laughs> Dudes. Nobody that tuned into this episode expected to get a recipe for a bong.
0: <laughs> I Here knew we as, are. I knew as soon as I asked the question, we were, we were going to take a right off at of the trail.
2: <laughs> anyway, I give this movie three and a half thermoses of tomato soup. Oh. It's a war movie from start to finish. And maybe in all of its corny Disney-ness, the fact that it doesn't give us any heroes, that nobody comes out of this movie smelling like a rose. Everybody is personally compromised. And even though the end is all covered in rainbows and unicorn shit, (laughs) we're not left feeling like any one soldier was heroic other than the captain who was dedicated to his mission and we and we understand why because he's a because he's a corn he's he's a, a solid ear of corn that guy
1: it's a corn he's a
2: corn but he felt in his in his Is 19- he a sons of a corn <laughs> in his 1943 like cornness he felt real so yeah three and a half thermoses. And I'm not even gonna modify one. I'm not even gonna modify that half a thermos and make it into something else. It's just three and a half wow. solid thermoses of tomato soup with no uh, added corn.
0: Well, I'll be damned.
1: See, if I hadn't been here, we wouldn't have had an interesting rating, Adam. <laughs>
0: <laughs> if you hadn't have been here, we would have had nothing of value at all on
1: this show. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think I would take it that far. I would but... just be
0: asking John about the different bongs that he's made in his life.
1: <laughs> I mean, I would definitely tune into
0: that podcast.
1: But...
2: We would have spent two hours talking about the gear ratio on the landing gear uh, crank of a B-17.
0: Welcome to episode 19 of The Greatest Bomb, a podcast where I just asked John about the bombs that he's made in his life. Each episode is four hours long. <laughs>
2: I'll mention it. We can have, is that a bong? (laughs) In every episode, I'll walk you through making another kind of bong.
0: Wow. Hard to answer whether or not that is a bong, but John, is that your guy? Who's your guy?
2: My guy is the one guy in the whole film that wears glasses. He's the, he's an officer. He's the one that keeps coming up to the colonel in the control tower He basically is like bad news guy. (laughs) He comes up and he's 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 somehow more connected to the mission and to the overall scope of the Eighth Air Force uh, because he knows what's going on. But he's also he's kind of a runner, but he's also like in a command position. Young, young guy. Maybe he's the colonel's adjutant. But he he seems to ha- have his finger on the pulse of everything that's going on. He's kind of a radar O'Reilly, but he's he's uh,
1: doesn't turn out to be an asshole yeah. later on.
2: <laughs> right? He doesn't have a shriveled arm um, and he just he looked like my guy. He felt like my guy. Yeah. And at the end of the war, he he it's never like made pornography. Gun. You
0: know your guy when you see him. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so he he's my guy. Um
1: my guy is also one of the ground crew. He's the I guess he's he's like a mechanic or something cuz he's always got like he's always like wiping grease off his hands or something. Yeah. When the Memphis Bell is coming in for its it's landing at the end and we've had a solid 5 minutes of shots of the wheel not going down guys cranking away on the manual <laughs> crank like the plane is coming in we see that one of the wheels is not down it's been the only thing that the movie is about <laughs> for the last 10 minutes they cut to this guy and he goes oh my god it's only got one wheel down <laughs> and it just it just knocked me out of my seat how funny that was to me <laughs> oh <laughs> For those of you not following along at home, they've only got one wheel down.
0: <laughs> <laughs> My guy's in the retaining pond next, next to the farm, and he's, he like points up into the air. He's like, that's a B-17. <laughs> <laughs> cool. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, that's a good guy, Ben. My guy is going to be uh, the Billy Zane character. He's Valentine Kozlowski. Uh, Mostly because of his counterpoint to the crew person uh, from mother and country. We see a guy in that dance scene ask for advice, uh, not knowing that the true way to be in war or any other time is to act as if. But poor Kozlowski has acted as if he's a medical doctor uh, in his time among the crew. That is
1: actually uh, qualifying as a medical doctor in Poland.
2: <laughs> and uh he, he got gets... you he got you, you <laughs> never see it you never see it coming Adam.
0: him <laughs> i know i know uh, but there's a moment where his medical training is 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 called into play it's when danny boy gets injured and he has to admit that he is not in fact a real doctor he only went through two weeks of training doesn't know anything he does know CPR, which I guess did not exist at this moment in time. So he is the man who pioneered CPR on board the B-17 as it was in flight. Uh, another bit of bullshit from the Kozlowski character. But, uh, but the whole acting as if and having it backfire publicly was something that I felt uh, was close to my heart. So for me, it's, it's good old Val. He's my guy. Good guy. so uh
2: next week is the beginning of the maximum fun drive which is uh, a sort of public radio style fundraising campaign that lasts only two weeks and we promise to make it not super annoying to the best of our ability (laughs) although believe me public public radio fundraising is i mean my middle class upbringing it was just like christmas every year I remember all the carols I know all the I know all the lyrics to all the songs.
1: If I had a nickel for every pledge break I listened to in the back of my mom's Camry station wagon growing up, I'd be able to contribute a lot to public radio but <laughs> uh, no, but uh, Friendly Fire is a listener supported show. We had our last uh, pledge drive when we were a very small show compared to what we get That's in right. terms of monthly downloads now so uh, in the next Starting next week and for two weeks uh, will be the Max Fund Drive. It's the best time of year to become a monthly supporter of the show, and uh, we really hope uh, a lot of you come out and do it. We're looking for 2,000 new and upgrading members, and we have some really exciting uh, gifts and incentives for folks who do that. So, uh, so tune in next week and make sure that uh, you set a calendar reminder for yourself to become a new and upgrading member of. Friendly Fire and Maximum Fun.
2: We're going to start off the incentive by doing something a little bit unusual, which is rather oh, than yeah. roll the dice on uh, on the film for next
0: week, you know, I'm yeah, a real maybe, stickler. Maybe
1: getting some crappy movie yeah. like uh, USS Indianapolis <laughs> yeah. or something. I'm a real stickler
0: hey, about that <laughs> unlike most other crappy movies, I didn't pick that one. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that
2: one got on the list. It says right Sorry. in the title USS Indianapolis. Um, so I'm of the three of us I'm the one that is the most hard assed about the dice uh, but for this one we all agreed that we we should have uh, for the first movie of the Max Fun Drive a classic of the war movie genre a film that um, that we've talked about it, from the very beginning of doing the show it was one of the first ch- movies on the list it is The Bridge on the River Kwai
0: yes really looking
1: forward to this it's a great great movie that I I love revisiting every few years and uh, I think one of the most unassailably perfect films for this podcast to talk about you know there's just so much to talk about in it and uh, it's a great one
0: it's going to be my first time seeing it I, I can't wait to see it and talk to you guys about it
1: wow yeah well uh, that will be next week so we'll leave it with Rob's from here Get ready to support us during the Max Fun Drive. Uh, and for now, for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts.
2: Friendly Fire is a maximum fun podcast hosted by Adam Pranica, Ben Harrison, and John Roderick. And it's produced and edited by me, Rob Schulte. Our logo art is by Nick Dittmore, and our theme music is War by Edwin Stark, courtesy of Stone Agate Music.
0: Feel like supporting the show? Then head on over to MaximumFun.org donate and show your love, or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I'm at Rob K. Schulte. Make sure to use the hashtag FriendlyFire whenever
2: you are using social media and talking about this show. Thanks, we'll see you next week.